the Struce. Congratulations, you've made it. Hi, this is David Reinstein. I work at an organization called Rethink Priorities, and we recently put out a report, an intervention report, called Intervention Report, Charter Cities. This is written by David Bernard and Jason Shoecraft. And this was basically funded or commissioned by the organization Open Philanthropy. Um, I'm gonna read through it. I may make the occasional comment, but I will try to refrain from the sort of digressions that I did in the previous uh, podcast readings. Uh, the reason I'm doing these readings is I think a lot of people would like to get into this and, and don't have the time to do all the reading they want to do, but they have driving and you have the other walking around and washing dishes things that make audio a nice medium. Um, to the extent that I do put in comments, I'll try to do it in a different voice and uh, have sort of a, a dialogue between two people, which I'll voice, um, so that it's clearer why I'm putting in the comment. I think that was a little jarring in the last episode. Anyways, without further ado, so David Bernard suggested that this would be a good thing to read. I, I think he was joking a little bit at first. Um, so this is, this is posted in the EA forum, forum.effectivealtruism.org, 12 June 2021. And he said you'd have one uh, audience member anyways because one person, Nathan Young, said I'd listen to a podcast bullet point of this report, of the authors of this report being questioned, ideally on the Charter Cities podcast. And Finn of, um, of uh, the Future of Humanities Institute and the podcast uh, Hear This Idea said, duly noted. So, Finn, I'm not trying to scoop you here. I think this could be complimentary. I'm going to be doing a not-that-dramatic reading, and then it would be great if you'd have David or, or Jason on your podcast. Okay, um, that's all the housekeeping I wanted to do. Um, house is clean now. And um, let me read this report. It's rather long. Um, as I said, I'll try not to interrupt it too much. And uh, yeah, let's, let's get started. It's tagged charter cities, cause candidates, rethink priorities, economic growth, less, caused, less discussed causes, economics, policy change, China, and I don't know what the white thing is. It's semi-tagged global health and development. Maybe that means someone else tagged it as such. Wait, I'm not are sure. you recording this? Don't you know that there's a lot of voice to text to speech that we can use, and it's really good. So I don't see why we need you to actually read this. Good question. I, I'm aware of, of text to speech, and I think it's rather good. There's a lot of good tools for it. I use some of them myself, but I think that we're not there in terms of putting in emotion and inflection. And if the content's important enough, I think the time spent by one person reading it, which they themselves will get something out of, uh, is probably worth it for the value. That's why we have audiobooks. Not that I'm trying to claim the status of a Scott Brick, etc. Intervention Report, Charter Cities. Rethink Priorities has been piloting, expanding into human-focused near-termism global priorities research. This post is one of three outputs from the pilot program. Open Philanthropy provided funding for this project, and we use their general frameworks for evaluating cause areas. But they do not necessarily endorse its conclusions. We don't intend this report to be Rethink Priorities' final word on charter cities. We hope the report galvanizes a productive conversation about charter cities within the effective altruism community. We are open to revising our views as more information is uncovered. And there's a promo here. If you're interested in doing similar research, please apply to Rethink Priorities Global Health and Development Staff Researcher Position. Deadline 13 June 2021. 
uh, I guess the deadline has technically passed. You can inquire if, if it's not too late to submit. Um, and there will be other positions coming up. Key takeaways. The value of charter cities can be divided up into three main buckets. Number one, direct benefits from providing an engine of growth that increase the income and well-being of people living in and around the city. Number two, domestic indirect benefits from scaling up successful charter city policies around the host country. And number three, global indirect benefits from providing a laboratory to experiment with new policies, regulations, and government structures. Sorry, governance structures. Next key takeaway. We think it is unlikely that charter cities will be more cost-effective than GiveWell's top charities in terms of directly improving well-being. The nearest currently existing empirical analog to charter cities are special economic zones. These do not seem to grow faster on average than their host countries. And if there are spillovers, they are limited to immediately adjacent areas. Even though some special economic zones do outperform their host countries, there do not seem to be policy or regulatory features of these zones that correlate with high levels of growth, suggesting that our ability to design high-performance special economic zones, and by extension charter cities, is limited. The cities that charter city advocates typically point to in support of the charter cities, e.g. Shenzhen, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Dubai, also had other factors going for them, such as proximity to trading partners and high-skilled immigration that may be difficult to replicate in future charter cities. Charter cities do not seem particularly tractable given the large number of actors who have to coordinate over a long period to develop and manage a city. The initial failures in Madagascar and Honduras illustrate the difficulty of establishing genuine charter cities, though these attempts may not be representative of future efforts. Our cost-effectiveness model suggests that over a 50-year time horizon, charter cities would have a 127x, 127 times return on investment in expectation a 5% chance of having greater than a thousand times return on investment and a 40 to 50% chance of having a negative return on investment. So this is these were summarizing the reasons why they think it's unlikely charter cities will be more cost effective than GiveWell top charities. I assume most of you are familiar with GiveWell top charities. GiveWell is an organization that rates charities the charities they've found to be most effective have been charities focusing on mostly on global health, uh, so health interventions like bed nets and deworming um, and other forms of disease prevention in the developing world, particularly in Africa. The authors also quantify their uncertainty. Um, they say that the midpoint of their expectation, the midpoint of their beliefs, is an 127 times return on investment in these charter cities. And um, basically they're saying, we don't know the answer for sure, but we're trying to be what they call well calibrated so that we're gonna state our uncertainty and if I'm well calibrated that when I say 20, something's likely to happen 20% of the time, then looking at the data later you'd find that it did happen 20% of the time. So they say that the midpoint of their expectation is 127 times return, but they think there's a 5% chance at the top end of having a greater than 1,000 times return on investment, but also a nearly 50% chance of having a negative return on investment. So if half, almost half the time it has a negative return, but its average return is 127 times, the, the point estimate of the average for them, then they're saying that there's some downside risk, but the upside risk is much greater than the downside risk. Nonetheless, they don't recommend it, and let's continue to, to figure out why. 
Scaling up successful policies could substantially increase the return on investment of charter cities. With the main data point in support of this being China liberalizing after Shenzhen demonstrated high growth rates. However, we are uncertain about how much this can be replicated. We would be very keen to see advocates make a more robust case for the returns here being sufficiently high in terms of scaling up of successful policies. We are very unsure what proportion of China's economic liberalization can be attributed to Shenzhen versus other factors such as external pressures from countries that wanted to trade with China. China was exceptionally far from market-oriented institutions before liberalization and has an exceptionally large population, so we should expect future scale-ups to provide benefits to fewer people and to provide fewer benefits per person, since nearly all countries where charter cities could be founded are much closer to typical market institutions. Final bullet point. The value of information from experimenting with new policies and governance structures in charter cities may be high, but we are very uncertain about this. The advocates we've spoken to and read mostly emphasize the direct benefits and only briefly mention these indirect benefits. We could not find a comprehensive argument for the value of these indirect benefits being large. Charter cities are expensive to build and take a long time to come to fruition. So if your focus was on the value of information, it seemed likely you could more cheaply and quickly generate this by focusing on alternatives which do not require you to build a new city, such as economic development and reform zones. We think it will be valuable for advocates to make a robust case for the value of information benefits of charter cities being high, and in particular, higher than alternatives in the sub-national governance space. Executive Summary We spent approximately 100 hours reaching charter cities and composing this report. We don't believe that charter cities are a cost-effective method to lift individuals out of poverty directly. However, charter cities may provide indirect benefits, spillovers, replication, and experimentation that are larger than their direct benefits. And the addition of indirect benefits may substantially improve the cost-effectiveness of charter city advocacy. Unfortunately, these indirect benefits are hard to model, and hence it is difficult to estimate their magnitude. However, we believe that most of the value of the indirect benefits, whatever their size, can be captured by special reform zones that are cheaper and easier to implement than charter cities. Establishing a genuine charter city looks relatively intractable, and the gains are extremely uncertain. Therefore, our overall view is that charter cities require more evidence in their favor before we could recommend them as a promising intervention to pursue. Charter cities require a host nation that is willing to cede substantial authority to a new jurisdiction. Ideally, this country would be low or middle income with a growing urbanization rate and a relatively stable political climate. Because charter cities are meant to be entirely new developments, the host nation must have also have a suitable greenfield site. This site ought to be sparsely populated, mostly undeveloped, with room to grow and trade access, ideally access to the sea. Charter cities also require private investors to partner with the host nation to help finance the project, with total costs on the order of $500 million to $10 billion. We believe bringing these components together will be difficult. The closest current analog to charter cities are special economic zones, SEZs. Special economic zones have a surprisingly mixed track record. Most zones grow at roughly the same rate as the national average, and a significant fraction of zones grow at a slower rate than the national average. Furthermore, zone growth appears difficult to sustain over time, and there is no clear correlation among zone policy and regulation features and zone growth. This suggests that we don't really know how to design a special economic zone to optimize for growth, because charter cities are by definition significantly more complicated than special economic zones, we are uncertain whether charter cities will be likely to adopt the sort of regulations that could, by themselves, promote robust, long-lasting growth. 
More research on the indirect benefits of charter cities, including the extent to which these benefits can be captured by special reform zones, would be valuable. Although we don't think the current evidence supports the case for charter cities being as cost-effective as give well charities and expectation, there is a strong case that advocacy for charter cities has positive expected value and more empirical research on the potential indirect benefits could further increase this expected value. So we are glad that there are smart, passionate people working on this topic. So those were the key takeaways in the executive summary. Let me just give a, a recap of that in a little bit layman -y terms. Charter cities are these things that involve collaboration of funders, organizers, private uh, enterprise, and host countries. The idea, well, they're going to be summarized in the next section, so I'm not going to go into that. Um, but the assessment of, of these authors was that the benefits are not strong enough to merit funding, at least not to merit funding from the point of view of these being at least as effective as the interventions mentioned by GiveWell. Uh, it sounds like they're saying that some aspects of this have been overhyped using special economic zones and particularly China's special economic zones as an example. But they seem to be saying that China and those special economic zones were especially promising cases which aren't likely to be replicable in the future. Uh, we shouldn't expect such great benefits in the future. Um, they say that the arguments for this being great for experimentation have not been fully fleshed out or possibly not strong enough yet, need to be fleshed out more. Uh, there's other ways of doing this experimentation. Uh, this is a very expensive and complicated project. It relies on many different parts all to come together. Uh, and they also aren't sure whether the sort of regulations that may, maybe they're saying that the regulations that charter cities can experiment with may not be easy to then carry over to countries uh, on a larger scale anyways. Okay, so, um, but they're saying that there's basically a case for more research on this and it seems to be a positive thing in net even if it's not seeming to be as effective as the most effective other form of charity or benevolent intervention per dollar. All right, so I'm going to continue. Um, as I said, it's a long report. I may not put the whole report in one podcast, but the next section is what is a charter city. So this whole next big section is an introduction to charter cities, um, and then they're going to do background assumptions, path to impact, cost effectiveness, uncertainties and open questions, and research ideas. Uh, so yeah, the next section is going to be an introduction to charter cities, starting with what is a charter city. Introduction to charter cities. Paul Romer, an economist, developed the modern concept of charter cities with a small group of like-minded individuals in 2008. Romer launched the idea publicly in a 2009 TED Talk. Since then, the concept has evolved and been refined such that as the term is currently employed, it differs significantly from Romer's original proposal. In this report, we focus on the idea as it is promoted by today's charter city advocates, which we take to be an improvement on Romer's model. And there's several footnotes and links there. What is a charter city? Charter cities involve two components, a new city and rules for that city. Charter cities are semi-autonomous units with significant legal jurisdictions over economic, social, and judicial institutions. While not wholly sovereign, charter cities are intended to be given a blank slate upon which to craft domestic policy as they see fit. As such, charter cities are expected to differ in many ways from the nations that host them. A charter city would likely feature different courts, different schools, different police, and different health care. A key aim for charter cities is to offer an improved business environment over their host nations with, quote, a legal and regulatory regime conducive to sustained economic growth. Mason 2019. 
Charter cities are meant to be places where starting a business registering property and obtaining construction permits is straightforward and affordable. Charter cities are also mentioned, meant to feature reliable contract enforcement and impartial dispute resolution. In addition to better institutions, charter city advocates hope that charter cities would possess better physical infrastructure with dependable electricity, water, and transportation. Charter cities intend to bring together public and private sector interests in a mutually beneficial way. The process would work as follows. First, the host nation designates a sparsely populated and mostly undeveloped tract of land as a charter city with the legal autonomy to set its own rules. Next, a private developer acquires the land and builds the physical infrastructure. The host government and private developer then jointly appoint a city council with some seats reserved for the local community and or third party auditors. The council establishes the rules and regulations for the city. The developer then sublets the land to businesses and individuals. The private developer stands to gain when the value of the land rises and so its representatives on the council are incentivized to adopt rules conducive to economic growth. What follows is a virtuous cycle of new jobs and new investment. If all goes according to plan, the city prospers and the host nation begins to emulate the policies and regulations that led to the city's growth. By this mechanism, charter city advocates hope to lift millions out of poverty, millions of people out of poverty. Although there are no true charter cities, although one might call Prospera in Honduras a charter town, some existing cities resemble the charter city models in important ways. Hong Kong, Singapore, Dubai, and Shenzhen are the most commonly cited examples. Shenzhen, for example, was a relatively sleepy hamlet of 30,000 when the Chinese government designated a 300 square kilometer special economic zone around the town. The region's new status enabled provincial officials to undertake significant economic liberalization. At the time, the average income per resident was a paltry $122. That's annual. Over the next four decades, the city's population grew to over 12 million from 30,000, and annual income per capita increased more than a hundredfold, World Bank 2010. So 100 fold, 122 times 100, that would be about $12,000 per year. According to the standard charter cities model, Shenzhen's success inspired Chinese officials to endorse economically liberal policies in other parts of the country, eventually lifting as many as 800 million individuals out of poverty. The charter cities movement hopes to replicate this success in other low-income countries. So that was what is a charter city. Next, related concepts. Charter cities are related to, but distinct from a number of other special jurisdictions and urban governments institutions, special economic zones, sustainable development zones. I think I will skip this section for now. Economic development and reform zones, seasteading, company towns. So they give a description of these other initiatives um, in the past. So I'll give, read the first sentence from, from each. Special economic zones uh, mandate extends across a relatively small geographic area with a narrow regulatory permit. Hundreds of special economic zones across more than 100 countries, hundreds to thousands. Special sustainable development zones are new urban communities, uh, the new model for urban governance, says someone. Um, okay. In contrast to charter cities, they're meant to be zoned on top of existing developments. They don't involve extensive new constructions. There are no SDZs with a bottom-up inclusive governance approach, something about Ethiopian government. Economic development reform zones, special jurisdictions that don't naturally fall under the scope of 
the above two, but are intended to promote economic growth through better institutions, more ambitious than SC's special economic zones, but less than charter cities. Someone's working with Vanuatu. Um, normal country laws do apply, but companies can adjust certain laws. Seasteading uh, are created at sea outside of the jurisdiction of any nation state. There's the seasteading institution. Uh, no current successful ventures so far. They mentioned Metaculus, which is a prediction site. Uh, believe there's a 20% chance of such a venture with at least 100 people beyond 2035. Company Towns um, is more of an analogy. The company, I think this is a historical thing, a company owns the land and provides many of the services and infrastructure. Okay, I suppose it's still going on in some countries. Sorry, Gouda points to modern success of, of an initiative in Liberia run by Firestone. Uh, they couldn't find studies on them. Alex Tabarok, uh, Marginal Revolution Defense. Next section, or perhaps it's a subsection within the introduction. Three ways to think about the value of charter cities. There are at least three non-exclusive ways one might conceptualize the value of charter cities. The first is by the economic growth premium that charter cities might enjoy over their host nations and the effect that this growth has on the charter city residents. Ideally, this framing would include spillover effects on neighboring areas outside the charter city. The second is by serving as a model jurisdiction, we've gone over this in the bullet points, that the host nation can replicate and scale up. So first, growth premium for charter cities over the host nations to model jurisdiction the nation can replicate and scale up. The third is by the value of information that charter cities might provide through experimenting with innovative and unprecedented policies and governance models that haven't been implemented anywhere else in the world. So the third is by providing global learning. In our conversations with them and in their published writing, advocates of charter cities have mostly emphasized the direct benefits, i.e. the first type of value. The first type of value is far easier to model, but it's plausible the majority of the expected value of charter cities flows from the second or third type of value. Charter cities as growth engines, the first way. The conventional approach to charter cities values them as drivers of economic growth. Charter city advocates typically believe that differences in institutions can account for the bulk of the differences between high and low performing regions. Uh, citing Mason, I'm not sure which, 2019. Another, to re-say it, charter city advocates believe that institutions are the most important reason why some countries and regions perform better than others. What counts as an institution, quote, is not always clear. But, for example, the Charter Cities Institute often cites the Ease of Doing Business Index, linked as a reasonable measure of the sorts of rules and regulations that govern growth. The goal of charter cities is to import the best institutions into low-performing regions, import the best institutions into low-performing regions, thereby jumpstarting economic activity and investment. Charter city advocates claim that new well-governed cities, that new well-governed cities will attract many migrants who would otherwise fake, face bleak prospects. Advocates believe that founding charter cities is a cost-effective way to alleviate poverty. The source of value, this source of value, is the focus of the case for charter cities within the effective altruist framework. I just want to quickly go to some of the links here uh, that were mentioned. So they mentioned Mason 2019, just, just to understand what, what these sources they're referencing are. The case for charter cities by the Charter City Institute, by Jeffrey Mason of the Charter City Institute, a research associate at the Charter Institute. And it's a moderately glossy but mostly text-filled PDF. The second thing that I, that I uh, mentioned in passing was, was a link, which I thought was actually a link to a different uh, post, but it's actually a link to the footnotes. Um, so there's some footnotes. The term Charter City has a legal definition in some jurisdictions, not what they mean. Romer's idea called for a powerful sovereign, a powerful foreign nation to guarantee the sovereignty of each charter city. It attracted criticism about so-called neo-colonial relationships. Uh, 
you can't change an existing city into a charter city, blah, 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 it's this definitional stuff. The charter city would have some limits to its autonomy. Special economic zones have evolved into various forms and are called by different names. Uh, our free, do free trade zones count? This, these are mostly definitional footnotes. Um, they cite other type of economic benefits from charter cities, such as increased happiness or liberty from living in a well-governed city itself. Uh, they explain what the doing business index considers to be these important factors in ease of doing business, such as starting a business, dealing with construction permits, getting electricity, registering uh, property, etc. They rank countries by these metrics. Uh, some discussion of will diasporas, diaspora populations return to charter cities. They may attract diaspora, po diaspora populations back. Charter cities as models to emulate. When a charter city succeeds, its success may inspire otherwise intractable reforms to be adopted across the charter city's host nation. In this way, the direct benefits that a charter city confers on its own residents may be dwarfed by the indirect benefits that the city confers on the rest of the nation by functioning as a proof of concept that is emulated elsewhere. The Chinese, quote, growth miracle appears to fit this model. Shenzhen's remarkable economic growth served as a demonstration of the power of liberal reform and bolstered support for reform among relevant decision makers in China. While we are sympathetic to this conception of charter city value, it's unclear whether the charter cities can achieve anything like the Chinese growth model in other parts of the world. There may not be any countries or regions that share enough of the relevant unique characteristics that define China's economic boom. In particular, it may be difficult to represent Shenzhen-level persuasion even with Shenzhen-like results. So even if you see results like Shenzhen, it may be difficult, they're saying, to persuade large countries to follow it, to learn from it and, and model those policies. That is, there may be diminishing returns on additional demonstrations of the power of economic liberalization to promote growth. If a country continues to push economically illiberal policies, if a country continues to push economically illiberal policies despite ample evidence, evidence that such policies constrain growth, it's unclear how much one more example of a well-governed city will do to convince the government to change. It's not as if the economic success of South Korea has convinced North Korea to liberalize. Leaders that want to found charter cities on their territory want to do so precisely because they expect the economically liberal policies adopted in the city will promote the city's growth. But if a leader already believes in the power of economic liberalization, it's hard to see what counterfactual impact the city will have in convincing the leader to pursue economic liberalization. Even in countries that develop charter cities, broad reform may be off the agenda, either because it is deeply intractable or deeply unwanted. If charter cities are going to serve as models to emulate, they will probably produce the most value by exploring new, untested, and unprecedented regulatory and political environments. Which brings us to the third way to think about the value of charter cities. Third way. Charter cities as laboratories of governance. Apart from their potential to, to generate economic growth directly, charter cities may prove valuable as locations where officials are free to experiment with radically new policies and governance models. Even if most of these experiments fails, fail, if charter cities accelerate the discovery of a handful of important generalizable techniques for improved governance and policymaking that are then replicated around the world, they may look attractive from a hits-based giving perspective. I believe here they're referring to a more uh, willing-to-take-risk giving perspective, charitable giving perspective, someone who's willing to give to several causes, several charities, to fund several sorts of interventions or trials, knowing that only a few of them will be successful, but the ones that are successful might be tremendously successful at either promoting a positive outcome or, in fact, avoiding a highly negative outcome sort of a diversification approach, perhaps. And there's a whole discussion over whether one should be, quote, risk-averse over impact in one's charitable giving, which I will not get into here. 
There are, however, several concerns with the, this conception of the value of charter cities. First, by near-termist standards, by the standards of people who care about helping people now or in the near future, the feedback loop from charter cities is long. In other words, it'll take a long time to learn about whether this is successful or to learn about or to have the learnings from charter cities that is the global benefit being cited here. It's unclear when or if advocates will be able to bring together the right mix of stakeholders to launch a charter city. But even if all the interested parties began negotiating today, the planning process would span years. Once the relevant details were hammered out, the construction phase could easily take a decade or more. Then, to fairly evaluate the results of, exper of its experimentation, results of experimentation, we would want the city to run at least a full decade before we assess its performance. In contrast, the feedback loop from reform zones is much shorter. While still offering many of the same benefits from experimentation. Uh, reform zones were mentioned in the previous section. I somewhat jumped over them. Um, they're less ambitious than charter cities. Uh, Michael Castle Miller is working with Vanuatu to develop, to develop special jurisdictions uh, managed by private companies um, who have some autonomy. Getting back to laboratories of governance and the limits for near-termists. Um, in contrast, the feedback loop from reform zones is much shorter while still offering many of the same benefits from experimentation. Second, not only is the feedback loop long, it is also expensive. Charter city advocates want to construct brand new cities, which would naturally cost a lot of money. Although only a fraction of that money would come from altruistic sources, like charitable donors, the high cost and other unique requirements of charitable cities will likely limit their number for the foreseeable future. With a small and heterogeneous sample, it will be difficult to extract robust lessons from experimentation. If we expect reality to be underpowered, Gregory Lewis uh, has a post called, on EA Forum that's linked here called Reality is often underpowered, the case for charter cities as laboratories of governance appears diminished. Um, I would say that sometimes you can, for policy purposes, make a lot of extrapolation from a small number of examples. So I might personally disagree with the emphasis on this. Uh, see the discussion in the last chapter of um, Algorithms to Live By. Okay, so first, the feedback loop is long. Second, they say it's expensive. Third, the laboratories of governments model means that there are additional risks involved. The risk level of charter cities falls on a spectrum, but many charter city projects are all likely already riskier than traditional real estate investments. Further focusing on the value that comes from experimentation would even further raise the risk. So it may be the case that there aren't a sufficient number of investors with a large enough taste for risk. So they're saying the risk of success of the charter city could also, the experimentation could also befall the investors in this project. There may have to be some balance between sticking to best practices versus novel approaches to ensure the coalition of public and private sectors remain on board. This likely limits the potential sample size to learn from, or perhaps the amount of experimentation and, and, and um, ability to move the so-called X or treatment variable within that sample. Finally, the laboratories of governance model may add to the neo-colonialist critique of charter cities. Charter cities are not only risky, but they are also controversial. Charter cities are likely to be financed by rich country investors, but built in low-income countries. If rich developers enforce radically different park policies in their charter cities, that opens up the charge that the rich world is using poor communities to experiment with policies that citizens of the rich world would never allow in their own communities. Whether or not this criticism is justified, it would probably resonate with many socially-minded individuals, thereby reducing the appeal of charter cities. History of the Charter City Movement. 
In 2008, Paul Romer made the first of several trips to Madagascar to promote charter cities as a solution to Malagasy poverty. By the end of the year, Romer had secured the blessing of Mark Ravalomanana, the president of Madagascar, to found not one, but two charter cities in the nation. However, less than two months later, Ravalomanana was deposed in a coup. The new country denounced Romer's project as treason, and the idea was quickly scrapped. Uh, as they cite the Atlantic magazine here. As the coup in Madagascar closed one door, a coup on the other side of the globe in Honduras opened another. In June 2009, President Manuel Zelaya was forcibly removed from office and eventually replaced by the more conservative Porfirio Lobo Sosa. By early 2011, Romer had convinced the new Honduran government to pass a constitutional amendment allowing for special development regions in which charter cities could be built on Honduran territory. The cities were to be managed by a government-appointed transparency commission, which Romer agreed to join. The idea became mired in controversy almost immediately. Residents in the proposed sites complained that officials had not contacted them. The government signed an investment deal without the consent of the transparency commission. The Supreme Court, I guess they mean of that government's transparency commission, the Honduran, the Supreme Court ruled the new zones unconstitutional, only to have the justices who voted against the zones summarily dismissed on dubious grounds. Shortly thereafter, Romer himself, Romer, just to remind you, is an economist, I believe, Nobel Prize winning, Romer himself distanced himself from the project. The project lurched forward without Romer, taking the form of Prospera, which was scheduled to break ground in 2020. It is not clear if the project in its current guise qualifies as a charter city due to its small size, 58 acres as opposed to Charter City Institute's minimum recommendation of 10 square kilometers, 2,470 acres. That's 50 times larger, I guess. You can read media coverage of Prospera Prospera in Bloomberg, and Astral Codex 10, I believe that's formerly known as Slate Star Codex, a popular blog in the effective altruism and rationalist communities. You can read recent media coverage of Prospera in Bloomberg and Astral Codex 10 and see metaculous forecasts of Prospera's population in 2021. And there's a link to that. And it says, will Prospera's population in 21 be larger than 1,000? Currently, the metaculous community predicts 18% likelihood. Here it says, currently 18% chance greater than 1,000. And the prediction for 2035, currently median, the prediction of the population for 2035, currently median prediction is less than 100. By the way, if you're not familiar with metaculous, I believe it's a nonprofit site. People go on and do forecasting. There's no money at stake, uh, basically, but people can gain reputation, which itself can lead to, well, sometimes even job offers. The reputation for being a good predictor. Um, okay. After the failures in Madagascar and Honduras, I guess what he saw as failures, Romer seemed seemingly lost interest in charter cities. Other figures have recently taken up the mantle of charter city advocacy, see below. Criticism of the idea also persists. Sarah Moser, professor of cultural and urban geography at McGill University, is perhaps the most prominent critic. In a 2018 essay, she argues that, as a quote from her, aside from the many failed startup city projects, there is a wide range of negative impacts that deserve careful study. There is growing evidence that the collateral damage produced by many projects is severe and unacceptable to many. They're ecological disasters. Many have demonstrated little respect for human rights, dignity, or lives. They are not accountable to any public, and they are sites of unprecedented corruption. There is consistent disregard for legally protected tribal and indigenous land. They are certainly zones of experimentation with new forms of governance and new unique levels of autonomy, but at what cost and to whom? From Moser, 2018. 
catounbound.org. She's posting. We haven't vetted Moser's assertions, but note that some of her criticism is, is aimed at projects that do not fall under the Charter City umbrella. Uh, this slightly reminds me of how people who were pro-socialism were always saying that the socialism we saw was never the real socialism. But uh, let's give the benefit of the doubt here. More importantly, Moser always denies that China's economic success supports the claim that charter cities are a good way to achieve economic growth, labeling it cherry-picking of the highest order. That seems to go with what I was just suggesting, but that may be unfair because this is a very new thing. We examine, by the way, I think that's known as the no true Scotsman critique or the no true Scotsman fallacy, that when someone points to an example that, that goes against your point, you say, well, you say, well, that's not a true Scotsman. I'm not explaining it well. Sorry. We explain this claim in greater detail later in this report. When in this section, identifying suitable rules, we look at a more representative sample of special economic zone performance rather than just focusing on the more successful special economic zones. Okay, um, so I think that ends introduction to charter cities. Let's move on to advocacy groups. Advocacy groups. Charter city advocacy is an extremely small space. We're 90% certain that total annual spending is less than $2 million. The main organization promoting charter cities is the Charter Cities Institute. Other relevant organizations include the SDZ Alliance, Greenfield Cities, Startup Societies Foundation, and New Cities. However, these organizations are generally smaller than the Charter Cities Institute and are focused on related, focus on related but distinct ideas. Okay, Charter Cities Institute. Mark Luther, Lutter formed, founded the Charter Cities Institute in 2017. CharterCitiesInstitute.org. The organization began with the aim to coordinate the diverse stakeholders who might be interested in charter cities. Since its inception, the organization's mandate has expanded beyond coordination to include general advocacy for charter cities, research on governance and institutions, and technical assistance to new city projects. The organization runs a blog and a podcast, both hosts conferences and meetups, holds essay contests, maintains reference guides, writes white papers, and engages in direct outreach. Engages in direct outreach and consults on projects. In 2021, CCI grew from a team of three to a team of eight. In conversation, Mark Lutter reported that with more funding, CCI would hire a senior researcher with ties to the international development community. CCI received 500 ETH, is that an okay, electronic currency, from Vitalik, Ethereum from Vitalik Buterin, Buterin on 12 May 2021, worth 1.9 million on that day, 1.2 million on 12 June 2021. Okay, and I believe that the Charter City Institute has since offered praise for this report slash post, even though it's largely pessimistic about charter cities. They next mentioned some other uh, advocacy groups, the Special Development Zone Alliance, um, offering technical institutions in tackling informality and poverty. Informality is people not being able to, I guess, get legal recognition of their property and, and get loans on that basis, etc. Currently donor and project driven, causing significant delays in moving forward. The SDZ Alliance, uh, constrained by a lack of funding to develop their projects to investment stage. Greenfield Cities is a small Dutch nonprofit that aims to stem forced migration by building new sustainable and prosperous cities in regions with many international migrants, especially in Middle Eastern and North African countries. They wouldn't have the political autonomy. It isn't promoting cities at all. They advocate self-supporting pop-up campuses to kickstart sustainable urban development. Developing its first campus in Mafraq, Jordan, or it sounds like they're saying on the border with Syria and 10 kilometers from a refugee camp. 
funded in part by the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but they're saying that doesn't sound like charter cities, sounds like something else. Startup Societies Foundation, um, U.S. organization that aims to cultivate an international committee of individuals interested in, in all of these things we mentioned above, such as C-states and C-steads and microstates. That sounds highly libertarian. Um, doesn't explicitly highlight charter cities. New Cities, a Canada-based nonprofit, um, advocates for sustainable urban growth, and charter cities are not a major focus. Although Mark Luther has Luther has written their editorial platform for their editorial platform. Next section: background assumptions that motivate the case for charter cities. There are a few core assumptions that charter city advocates tend to share, and these seem central to their support of charter cities. To even get the case for charter cities being the most cost-effective, being one of the most cost-effective interventions off the ground, to even get the case off the ground, we think you have to agree with the broad thrust of the assumptions, of these assumptions that we're going to state. Here we summarize these assumptions as they appear in CCI's The Case for Charter Cities Within the Effective Altruism Framework. They've, they've uh, cited this document quite a lot, and provide a very shallow overview of the evidence supporting and opposing them, supporting and opposing these theories, uh, these, these assumptions. First stated assumption, economic growth is the best way to alleviate poverty, is the assumption. Charter city advocates typically believe that economic growth is substantially better than alternatives in its ability to tackle poverty. Mason writes that long-run economic growth is unrivaled in its power to alleviate poverty. He points to Pritchett, Lent Pritchett, cgdev.org, publication, as the academic article supporting this claim and the rapid growth of India and China and the consequences this had for the proportion of the world's population living in extreme poverty as examples. Pritchett argues that the income gains of the graduation approach, um, that's in capitals, uh, are 40, the graduation approach, are 40 times smaller than income gains from migration to a high productivity country like the USA, and further growth, further dwarfed by large growth accelerations such as those experienced by China and India. And as such, we should focus on growth and migration rather than typical give-well style institutions, typical, typical give-well style interventions, such as like anti-malarial bed nets and nutrition and deworming. Um, perhaps direct cash transfers to the very poor. Pritchett's broader body of work is also the foundation for many of the claims in the popular EA forum post by Hauke Hillebrand, Growth and the Case Against, quote, Randomista Development by Jonathan Hostad and Hauke Hillebrand. We won't summarize this post, but suffice it to say, it was well-received among the EA community, and the community now seems to think that it is plausible that focusing on economic growth is an effective approach. Um, however, not much practical work on interventions to increase growth seems to have been done. I would say therein lies the rub. The absence of direct EA work to improve growth is partially explained by the practical difficulties surrounding interventions aiming to boost growth. Stephen Clare and Aidan Goth of Founders Pledge summarize these difficulties in their post. Can we drive development at scale? An interim update on economic growth work. Our take is that economic growth is the most important factor in increasing incomes and bringing people out of poverty. Is the most important factor. However, we sympathize with the view that improving growth has low tractability because it is unpredictable and very hard to influence even for large government actors. As such, our prior, like Bayesian prior, uh, belief coming in, our prior or outside view is that in general, interventions aimed at increasing growth have low tractability and a strong inside view case needs to be made for specific interventions, such as charter cities being tractable. CCI's view is that, quote, we are substantially underestimating the tractability of charter cities, uh, end quote, I think. For example, CCI, no, it continues the quote. For example, CCI is drafting legislation for a country that elected a president sympathetic to charter cities 
drafting legislation for this president, and has been given giving strategic advice to a stealth charter city development that is negotiating substantial legal authority and concessions on hundreds of square kilometers. They anticipate similar opportunities arising in the coming years. Mark Luther, personal communications. So the first assumption that they think is necessary for charter cities to be a case for being an efficient use of charitable funds altruistic funds, is that you have to assume that economic growth is the best way to alleviate poverty. They get attractability, though, in that section, too. The second, uh, what they think to be underwriting assumption, would need to be that economic growth is mostly a result of good institutions. Perhaps the most critical claim is that institutions are the primary determinant of growth. Mason, same citation, writes that many have strongly argued that the principal causes of economic growth both across and within countries, are differences in institutions across and within countries, close quote. And then goes on to summarize these arguments. The academics and key articles commonly cited in support of this claim are North, 1991, Achimolu, Johnson, and Robinson, 2004, uh, well-known e economists. That paper itself is rather controversial, I would say, in its so-called causal identification. Achimoglu and Molu and Robinson's book, Why Nations Fail, Roderick, 2004, and Roderick, Roderick, Submaranian, and Trebi, 2004. And they give links and DOIs, DOIs to all of these. These articles by economists and political scientists use varying methodologies to make the claim that institutions are important for growth. In some cases, they compare the relative importance of institutions against other factors, such as geography, climate, culture, and trade, and find that institutions win the horse race. We haven't looked into these papers specifically for this project, but are familiar with this broader literature, and we note that these articles are by academics well-respected in the economics profession. Um, the papers themselves are influential and highly cited, and they're often a core part of an undergraduate or graduate macro-development economics course. Note that um, one of the authors of this post, David Reese Bernard, is a PhD student in economics and finishing his degree. However, they often rely on coarse data, contested causal identification assumptions, and relatively weak instrumental variables. Instrumental variables is a technique in econometrics slash statistics to identify causality. So they're saying they often rely on coarse data, contested identification assumptions, and relatively weak instrumental variables to make their causal claims. So interpreting them, interpreting these papers, requires significant care, especially when they are crucial considerations for action. Um, and yeah, they're somewhat contested, these papers in, in the literature, in the economics. See Volroth's 2014 Skeptic's Guide to Institutions, Part 2, 3, and 4, for an accessible critique of this literature. Um, yeah, to me, it seems like institutions must certainly be important, but the question is more how important. We note that the concept of institutions is not typically well-defined, and some claims about charter cities and growth more broadly may hinge on the exact definition being used. Most definitions typically include a reference to, quote, the rules of the game and, quote, humanly devised constraints that shape economic interactions, North 1991. These definitions allow for many subclassification schemes with formal, e.g. constitutions and laws, and informal, e.g. customs and traditions, being the most common classification schemes. Constitutions or informal. Culture, quote, is usually posited as another potential fundamental determinant of development, and there is often overlap between culture and informal institutions. Furthermore, when the concept of institutions is operationalized for quantitative study, it often ends up being much narrower. For example, Achimolu, Johnson, and Robinson, 2001, in their study on the links between settler mortality, that is the original colonial settlers, institutions, and GDP, use a 0-1 measure of property rights or protection against expropriation risk in their terminology from capital political risk services as a proxy for institutions more broadly. So they use that as their this measure of property rights, expropriation risk as their measure of institutions. The opera, opera, 
operationalization relies that Mason, the Charter Cities guy, relies most heavily on is the World Bank's Doing Business Index, previously mentioned, which they recognize is not perfect, but is a reasonable measure of a country's business environment. We think Charter City advocates overstate the consensus of economists on the primary importance of institutions for growth. For instance, Mason CCI references the works of Rafael Laporta, Florencio Lopez de Silanes, Andreas Schleifer, and Robert Vishny, LLSV henceforth, on legal origin, saying that legal systems are a key piece of the institutional story. However, LLSV and co-authors are typically framed as arguing against the importance of institutions, are typically framed as arguing against the importance of institutions, not in supporting them. In another economist, Glazer et al., 2004, they write that, quote, human capital is a more basic source of growth than are the institutions. Human capital is a more basic source, they say. In Genaioli et al., 2012, they argue that human capital is the key driver of differences in development within the regions of a country, within regions of a country, but for measures of institutional quality, quote, their ability to explain cross-regional differences is minimal. Furthermore, our impression is that there is not a consensus among economists on the claim that institutions are the most important factor for growth, and we have not been able to find any polling of economists on this topic. That would be interesting to do such a polling. That said, we think there probably is consensus that institutions are important for growth, if not the most important factor. Consensus that they're important, if not the most important factor. As such, our broad take is that institutions do play a substantial role in economic growth. However, we take charter cities' advocates to be claiming something like formal or informal institutions are 80% of what causes growth. We favor a more pluralistic view and would assign institutions a weekly held 30 to 50% of the credit. Okay, first assumption necessary for motivating the case for charter cities as an effective use of charitable funds or altruistic funds are one, economic growth is the best way to alleviate poverty. They say you gotta assume that. Two, economic growth is mostly a result of good institutions. And then number three uh, is their third thing that they claim. I would suggest that probably more things are necessary, there are more necessary assumptions. Um, the third claim is that direct reforms to institutions at a country level are not tractable. If you accept the previous two premises, then you might think that we should be aiming at reforming national institutions to affect growth, since these would increase your impact by affecting more people than subnational institutions. One main reason advocates chose to focus on cities is instead due to tractability concerns. This is typically framed in terms of special interest groups who profit from existing institutional arrangements and thus lobby against and resist changes that are beneficial from a social welfare perspective but harmful to those special interest groups. Special interest groups being smaller and more concentrated than society at large means they can more effectively resist institutional or policy change that harms them. Charter cities avoid these concerns by being set up on greenfield sites and starting from a blank slate or charter. Both of these features mean that in theory, there are no existing interest groups to oppose new institutions. An alternate response we have heard is that charter cities and similar concepts actually are a tractable way. An alternate response we've heard is that charter cities and similar concepts actually are a tractable way to indirectly reform national institutions. The thought here is that if the charter city can experiment with a new set of institutions and show that they work well, then national governments will be more willing to implement those institutions on a broader scale. The example most commonly raised in support of this point is the special economic zone in Shenzhen, China, described in more detail in our Charter Cities as Model Stimulate section above. Okay, so it sounds like they're saying that, that, that the third thing is that you need to assume that direct reforms to institution or at a country level are not tractable, but, and maybe they say this elsewhere, but that Charter Cities are a pathway to, to getting there instead, rather than direct reforms. Um, however, same section, there are a number of ways to reform subnational institutions as an alternative to charter cities discussed 
in the related concept session section. Um, so there might be other ways other than charter cities. Ideally, charter cities should be at least as tractable as these alternatives, such as reform zones. Given that charter cities require the expense, time, and logistics of building a new city on top of a greenfield site, which alternatives typically do not require, we are skeptical that charter cities would be more tractable than the alternatives. So perhaps their case against charter cities is here a narrow case against charter cities, but not against special reform zones. To think that charter cities were more tractable, tractable than the subnational alternatives, you would have to think that the blank, the blank slate feature of charter cities makes it much more likely for subnational reforms to happen. E.g., as charter cities are X times more expensive than reform zones, they have to be X times more likely to achieve the reform to be more tractable. We argue, we agree that reforming institutions at subnational levels is likely to be more tractable than reforming institutions at national levels. However, we're very unsure on how much more tractable it is and whether it is worth the trade-off in terms of impact. Further, it is not clear to us that reforming subnational institutions by setting up an entirely new city is more tractable or cost-effective than reforming them by some other means, such as a special economic zone or one of the many other options placed on top of an existing city or region. Okay, um, I'm about halfway done with the article, but it's taken me hour, hour and a half to set up and record this. Um, so I will stop here and put this up as a podcast to be continued and uh, finished soon. Uh, in the next podcast, I will continue with this reading about um, Charter City's path to impact, cost-effectiveness, uncertainties and open questions, research ideas, and then I'll get to some of the comments. Um, Okay, yeah, I'm just looking at the comments here. There's one particularly long and interesting comment, which probably be best to get to at the end. Okay, thank you for listening, and please add your comments in the Anchor app if you can, or contact me. Let me know if you have any suggestions on how I can make this podcast better and more useful. And remember, you can find a very special economic zone if you look to see what might be. Found in the Struce.